From WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina, this is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. Cape Fear Corral is celebrating its 25th year. Over a quarter of a century, the group has grown to almost 90 members, is filling up larger venues, and is still offering free concerts. It was 1998 when local musician, clinician, and teacher Jerry Cribbs decided he would launch a community chorus that would be high-quality music, free, and open to the public. Most years, the chorale has produced two annual concerts. But then, COVID. Jerry Cribbs had actually planned to retire around 2021, but who in the world followed through on plans that year? He didn't want to hand over his chorale to a new director on the heels of a pandemic, so it was 2022 that new artistic director and conductor Dr. Aaron Peisner took the baton. As with any art form, the chorale's relationship with its music is evolving. New composers and music from other parts of the world are finding their way into the chorale's repertoire, and I am thrilled to welcome both directors to today's conversation. Jerry Cribbs, founder and director emeritus of Cape Fear Chorale, welcome to Coastline. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Appreciate the invitation. Wonderful to have you with us. Dr. Aaron Peisner is Cape Fear Corral's artistic director and conductor. He is also an assistant professor and director of choral activities at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. Dr. Peisner, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. Great to have you with us. The next concert, 25 Years of Cape Fear Corral, is Sunday, April 2nd, 2023, at Keenan Auditorium. Jerry Cribbs, one of the important components of your original vision for this chorus, this chorale, was and is high-quality music, but this was going to be an all-volunteer group. How did you plan to keep the quality there with an all-volunteer community chorus? Well, Starting out, uh, we, we did not do auditions. Uh, we started out basically with a self-assessment. The singer would, uh, of course, we had to do some publicity about the group to even get to that point, but uh, the singer would do a self-assessment, and, and that assessment would be uh, uh, rating themselves in relation to sight singing, in relation to intonation tuning, in relation to tone, in relation to, to being a team member, so to speak. And um, then, of course, the personnel dictated to a degree the music that I felt like that that particular group would be successful with. And uh, then from that point on, we just uh, started with about, I don't know the exact number, 30, 40 singers. And uh, uh, they didn't, as I said, audition, but we started and uh, really were very fortunate in some success fairly early on. Uh, we started out with about four concerts a year and found out that that probably uh, in relation to quality, we needed to cut back. And I think that uh, proved to, to help our continuation to, um, to improve the group. Yeah. And just tell us, why was this vision so important to you? What, what made you want to do this? Because it's, it has been a labor of love for these 25 years and, and not a small amount of work. 
Well, I think part of it was just the fact that this whole, the whole state in it of itself was growing. This part of the state really growing quite a bit. We did have already a community chorus or two in town. Um, and But I felt like with the numbers that were uh, retiring here, that were moving here, the, the attractiveness of the arts in general in this space, uh, that we could easily handle another group um, and a group that, um, that we could uh, um, um, really put in a, in a situation where there was some type of at least self-auditioning or self-assessment, and eventually we did audition, and, and, and they still do, uh, to take us to that level. And it also gave us an opportunity to have a group that, if we wanted to pull in, which we did, uh, instrumentalists to accompany major works and oratorios or whatever we uh, decided on, uh, we had that um, ability as well with, the, with this group. So um, it, it proved to, uh, to work well with that concept, I think. Dr. Peisner, you have sung professionally. You uh, are an assistant professor at UNCW, director of choral activities there. So you're a professional musician all the way around. What drew you to this particular post? Why did you want to lead the Cape Fear Chorale? Ultimately, it's an opportunity to perform really incredible music. You know, I, I think I part of one of the biggest reasons why I went into this profession is because I'm just in love with the repertoire, in love with just, I don't know, just so many different kinds of choral music and just the act of rehearsing, the act of singing, the act of building something together, of, you know, starting a rehearsal in one place and ending, uh, just being able to see vast improvement. It's just such a fun and exciting thing to do. And so another opportunity to do that in a different kind of setting, you know, with a larger group, uh, being able to do major works like choral orchestral pieces um, was just a, a fantastic thing. And uh, Jerry had invited me to uh, guest rehearse once or twice, and then I conducted a little bit in the Messiah concert in uh April 2021. And even in that first rehearsal when I worked with them, I was just so impressed with their sound. And, you know, it was just so great to be up in front of a group of like 80 people. It was just, it's just a lot of fun <laughs> uh, to wave your arms and have that sound uh, come back at you. And so it's, yeah, just uh, the group specifically, the sound, the level of, um, of dedication of the members of the group, you know, people, people do their homework. People come to rehearsal prepared. So uh, which is really fantastic. Uh, so yeah, a lot of different things uh, have made this uh, position one that really matches with what I love to do. One of the living composers, Jerry Cribbs, that, uh, whose work you've used as part of Cape Fear Chorale's programs is Eric Whitaker, and he's an interesting chap. Did you know Eric Whitaker was on TikTok? I did not. He may not be, depending on what happens uh, before they ban it in the U.S. We don't know. <laughs> but uh, in this particular video, he talks about what choral music is to him and what it means to be in an ensemble. In an ensemble, you, you learn compassion, you learn empathy, you learn discipline, you learn languages, you learn history, you learn focus 
all of these things that are essential for every other part of your life, all these other parts of the study, every one of the, the letters in STEM, you, you learn through that. Ensemble music making in general. But with, with choral music, you get the added, the, the addition of language, right? So, so that you, you're now starting to sing and think about the great questions of the, the human mystery. Why are we here? What are we doing? What is love? What is death? Children. They, you start to build uh, a sense of an, an ethical foundation through the art that you're singing and that you're internalizing. Then, on top of that, there is study after study that shows the health and, and well-being benefits of singing. Right? We know now that just singing together in a group uh, reduces the the stress hormone cortisol, it, it releases endorphins, it causes a sense of joy and euphoria, it creates a bonding uh, with, within the, the physical, a physiological bonding chemical that happens within the, the people in the room. And, and now there are even studies that show that singers who sing together tend to sync heartbeats. Their heartbeats actually begin to sync. Now we don't know yet if that's because they're just breathing all at the same time. You know, if it's homophonic music does it, if polyphonic music does it. But there's just no question that there's this physiological component to what we're doing as well. And also you're singing, you're breathing, it's just good. Then there's the social aspect of it, which again, studies, hard data shows that that's the that that social environment is essential for a sense of well-being, for a sense of building community, empathy, compassion. So I feel that with the data, with the anecdotal evidence, and just a sense of humanity, I can't imagine how educators don't say, this is the way we start our days. This is, we start our days with singing, and then everything else actually rolls out in this really lovely way. But this is the core of who we are and what we need to be. Eric Whitaker, composer, talking about uh, choral music and and what it means to be in an ensemble. There's a lot to unpack there, but let's let's go back to the basics before we get to the profound questions like what is love and what is life and what is death. <laughs> he says it teaches you language and history. So um, for those not conversant in choral music, and I count myself among them, what is a requiem? <laughs> A requiem is just a mass for the dead. So just um, originally, um, the first requiems would have been uh, Gregorian chant, and then they would have moved on to polyphony, meaning just multiple voices uh, singing different notes at different times. And then throughout history, uh, requiems have evolved to include instruments. And then at a certain point, composers said, why does the requiem have to be the... Uh, the Catholic liturgy. Why can't I include other texts in the Requiem? Um, and uh, Heinrich Schütz uh, composed one in the 17th century that wasn't maybe technically a Requiem, but his uh, Musikalisch Exequien is, uh, it's basically music for the dead that uh, brings in a bunch of different Lutheran texts. And then the Brahms German Requiem famously is a German language Requiem uh, that brings in uh, a lot of different texts that aren't necessarily uh, about doctrine. They're not necessarily dogmatic, but are just more about comforting the living. And then you get into the 20th century with composers uh, like most famously probably Benjamin Britten writing his War Requiem, which uh, brings texts from the uh, Latin liturgy uh, with some World War I poetry in ways that are really fascinating and moving. And when we come back from this break, Dr. Aaron Peisner, I'm going to ask you about the first concert that you programmed for Cape Fear Chorale, which was Gabrielle Foray's Requiem. Yes. 
You're listening to Coastline. Jerry Cribbs and Dr. Aaron Peisner of Cape Fear Corral are my guests today. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. In 1998, Jerry Cribbs took the leap and started a choral group that would perform two high-quality concerts a year, although I know you started out with four, decided that was too much, narrowed it down to two, and one of the main components of this would be that it's free and open to the public. 25 years later, a new artistic director is at the helm, Dr. Aaron Peisner, and Cape Fear Corral, Jerry Cribb's original vision, is going strong. Both men are here with me today. The next concert, 25 Years of Cape Fear Corral, is Sunday, April 2nd, 2023, at Keenan Auditorium. And Dr. Peisner, just before we went to break, you were explaining what a requiem is, how it evolved, and talked about the fact that the very first concert that you programmed for Cape Fear Chorale included Foray's Requiem. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and why you chose that? Yeah, well, and actually, um, in a sense, I didn't really choose it, but I sort of did because <laughs> the uh, the they had already planned to do a concert of the Foray Requiem and Uh, and selections from Leonard Bernstein's Mass in the fall of 2021. And then there was another wave of COVID, and they decided to postpone that semester of Cape Fear Chorale. So they pushed it off to uh, 2022, fall 2022. And very early on in the talks of when we started to, you know, when... Uh, I started to take over. They're like, we need to make a decision pretty quickly. Do you want to do Foray Requiem and selections from the Bernstein Mass? And I said, yes, sure. And the thing about that is that uh, the Foray Requiem is was kind of the perfect piece uh, coming out of the worst days of the pandemic because it's quite familiar. A lot of like. So many people in chorale have a lot of choral experience. So most of them have sung for a requiem before. Um, Is that something, Jerry Cribbs, that you've programmed before? Yes. Uh, I can't remember the year that we did it, but we did it several years ago, the, the for a requiem. We had never done the Bernstein, but uh, we did the for a, yeah. And so that's, several of them knew it. And actually, when I was going through old programs to figure out music for this upcoming concert, I saw that you had done the foray. But um, that, you know, that very comfortable piece, um, which is so beautiful and also very gratifying to sing. You know, it's just such a it's just such a it's kind of like a big hug in a sense. And that's sort of what it's meant to be in a sense that, you know, there are some moments I feel like in a requiem, there's always this there are kind of these two different um, ideas at play. One is like concern for the souls of the dead and the other is comfort for the living. And I feel like the foray has moments of concern for the souls of the dead, but is more of a, is more 
uh, of a sense of comfort for the living, just in terms of the musical content. So there's that on the one side, on the one hand, and then on the other hand, there's the Bernstein, which was new for pretty much everybody in the ensemble, including myself. I hadn't really, uh, I had never conducted it before. I had conducted the Foray Requiem twice before, um, and I hadn't conducted the um, the Bernstein before. I hadn't really studied it very much. I didn't really know it very well. Um, why before why this. was it so unfamiliar to people? Why is it not part of the well, canon? For, so part of it is that um, it requires enormous performing forces, you know, a big orchestra plus like bass guitar, electric guitar, a, like a few different choirs. And actually, uh, so Jerry brought this edition of it by Doreen Rao uh, to me, which is uh, which is what you were planning on doing with them uh, in 2021. Um which is for a smaller uh, performing forces and is a little bit more flexible for an ensemble that doesn't have an enormous budget. Um, so that was a so so it was a lot of fun uh, studying that piece and learning it myself, and then uh, learning it with the ensemble. So we had on the one hand something very comfortable that was like. Uh, saying hello to an old friend in a way and then meeting a new friend with the with the Bernstein mass and that was so the in a sense it was it was the perfect uh, program to be spending time with in fall 2022 so we have a clip from selections from Bernstein's mass mm-hmm. before we listen to it can you just talk about how as the artistic director or conductor I guess in this case you're you've you find your way into the heart of the piece. You find your way into the music because it's probably one thing to look at notes on a score and another thing to find that that spirit of it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think part of it is knowing the historical context. Uh, it was written in 1971 um, and... It was, you know, there was just such a turbulent time in American history. And Bernstein decides to write this piece that has all sorts of kind of political implications and questions. And it's all about sort of questioning authority, um, but finding spirituality through questioning authority. And uh, then, then I sort of had to ask myself, what does it mean for us today to perform this work? How do we individually connect with it? How can we connect with the sense of urgency that you hear in some of the music? And in the clip that, uh, that we have, there's definitely a sense of urgency. And this is the point in, and by the way, the um, Bernstein's Mass is a staged work. And you know, that's, it's not like, you know, there's Beethoven's Mass in C, Haydn's Mass in Time of War, you know, all these different kinds of masses. Bernstein's Mass isn't a choral work is it is a theater work called Mass, and which has a large choral uh, component to it. So this is like a, a like a concert performance of a staged work. So this is the part in the staged work, the Anus Day, where the where people are. Uh, and they keep repeating uh, at a later point uh, that's not in the clip. They keep saying "Dona nobis pacem" in a way that is uh, incredibly insistent, and they're saying "Grant us peace." You know, the implication being we are not at peace. We are we are frustrated and we are tired and we and our needs are not being met. Grant us peace. So so you hear the urgency in the music. And this is from a rehearsal. This is actually this is from the performance. This is from. Yeah, this is from the performance in uh, November. Yeah. 
2022. Yes. Cape Fear Corral. an excerpt from Cape Fear Chorale's performance of Bernstein's Mass, directed by Dr. Aaron Peisner. Jerry Cribbs, one of the milestones in the history of Cape Fear Chorale was having Carl Nygaard Jr. conduct. Can you, first of all, talk about who this person is and this happened in 2007 in the fall, guest conductor. Uh, how did you swing that? And, and who is he and why was this so significant for the chorale? Uh, first of all, Carl is a very well-known choral composer, more choral than instrumental or anything like that, though he will include instruments on his choral music. Um, uh, used a lot at, for high school groups, that type of thing. Um, uh, also a lot of, of sacred things that he's composed over the years. And he and I actually attended a, um, a Lutheridge uh, summer music week together. Um, we just didn't know we were going to be meeting one another at that uh, particular week, but we did. And we uh, became very, very good friends. And uh, and so, um, and I, I have, had, even before I met him, had fallen into uh, in love with much of his music. Um, it is from the heart, uh, and it is uh, very, uh, particularly the, the sacred stuff. I'm a choir director, a church choir director, so uh, it is very much uh, in, uh, spiritual. And uh, at any rate, um, I, I, I liked his music. I liked how it speaks. I liked him as a person. And so I invited him to come and, and conduct, conduct the group. And, uh, and we would do music all of his compositions. The, the entire concert consisted only of the compositions that he had written, some secular, some sacred. Uh, and uh, so anyway, he agreed to do it. He came down and spent a few days with us. We, of course, prepared the group before he came here. And, uh, and we were just very fortunate to have him conduct the, that concert. And uh, I think it, uh, uh, we, of course, as we would always, we have pictures of that. And, and uh, that, that is one of the milestones, I think, that the chorale itself just really appreciated, enjoyed uh, to, to work with a composer. And I've talked with both of you separately about the sacred element of choral music and the fact that it is traditionally anchored in Christianity, Christian theology, now, Jerry Cribbs, you've held some kind of choral directing position with the church since 1968. Is that right? Yes, it is. So is it fair to say that... Uh, I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't where I was going with it, but, you know, um, by that measure, um, Sorry. <laughs> it's all relative, right? True. Uh, <laughs> but but you, 
you relate to the theological part of this music? Is that the text, I suppose? Can yes. you talk about what it means to you? Yeah, and Eric Whitaker, of course, you know, brought it right in that instrumental music is glorious by itself. I mean, I, I love in symphonic music, band music, as much as I do choral music. But the fact that you bring the text in, you have another element of helpful interpretation, certainly um, helpful in relation to emotions, maybe even guiding us, although sometimes it's maybe good to have our own interpretation rather than being influenced by text. But in this case, of course, the theological piece is part of it, and, and you, the composers are, are generally so very uh, fine at reflecting the text in the music, sort of the text painting concept. Uh, so uh, yeah, and, and um, the, the, uh, the, the text helps certainly as a director, it helps guide me as a director uh, what to do musically as well. And that makes sense. For those who don't relate to the theological piece of this, Dr. Peisner, you were raised Jewish, um, but you find yourself so passionately drawn to some of these pieces that are rooted in Christian theology. Can you talk about what it means to you and how you find the personal connection to it? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I always found it funny that, like, for me, like, if— like if, when it comes down to it, my absolute favorite music is uh, like 16th century Renaissance uh, Catholic music, like extremely Catholic, <laughs> like some a lot of it even from the period of like the Spanish Inquisition, you know, like but, but just the music itself is so rich and so powerful and so full of uh, pathos and drama. And I, so so part of it is just the music itself, the notes themselves, just the way that they relate to each other. There's just emotional content within the notes themselves in the same way that there is in instrumental music. But then also, as far as relating to the, um, the theological context and, and, and everything, I think I try to find for myself. And then also I, I talk about this in the ensembles that I direct because I know that I'm not the only one who is not necessarily Christian and singing this music, um, that just uh, to look for and to find whatever um, most elemental human experience is present in the music. Like, for example, in a, like, you know, the, the mass has a segment that's called the Gloria. And so the Gloria is about glorifying God. And I feel like there, you know, that is a very specific thing, but you can kind of reduce that to just an element of awe or, or just wanting to sing the praises of something that's bigger than yourself. And you don't need to be religious to have that experience. So, I, so sometimes I think the words are, you know, the words speak to something specific, but actually get at something more general and more... Um, more human than any one specific religion. And I try to, you know, any in any given semester, in any given piece, I try to, uh, to talk about that because I think it's important that we do connect with the text, even if on the surface it's not something that we're immediately uh, drawn to or that we immediately connect to. That's so interesting. So you're saying the text can be almost um, a portal into a much deeper kind of universal exactly. idea or experience. Yeah, yeah. It's like a, a portal is a great way to think about it. It's a portal into a deeper experience, which to me then is the music itself. If the composer 
is, uh, and you know, Jerry put it so well that that these composers whose music we love are so sensitive to uh, to that deeper idea in a, in a piece of music, whether it's a piece of sacred music or secular music. They're you, you know the composers whose work has lasted throughout the ages are sensitive to the human experience behind the words, and that's that's what we're after. That's what we're trying to find, and then since they're sensitive to it, the music itself almost makes it easier. It makes it easy to connect to that text. You know, I like just the Gloria text on its own is not necessarily something that I might connect to, but the Gloria uh, text in the context of the, the Bach B minor mass, that, you know, that's a spiritual experience. You know, that's a, that's, that makes me drawn to that text. You glow when you talk about it. I am not. <laughs> I kidding. just love Bach. <laughs> <laughs> and so, a, a quick history lesson here. Help us understand why so much choral music is. And I know there there's secular choral music, Jerry. You've talked about that a little bit, and we'll we'll get to some of that. But why is so much of the traditional canon rooted in the Christian church? Well, I, when you think about what a choir is. Uh, it's, in, it's usually a large-ish group of people singing. Might be a medium to large group of people, and that's usually going to be housed at an institution. So the institutions uh, historically um, that had the money to pay people to write music were uh, were churches for the most part, and also there was just the utilitarian need to have music in uh, in the church, and you and you know. You couldn't go on sheetmusicplus.com uh, back in the 1800s and the 1700s and just find uh, a communion piece or a piece for a Good Friday or whatever. You had to write it, or you had to have a library, and uh, as, you know, so composers were writing music to be used in their church services that week or in the upcoming season. Um, yeah, so so it was it was actually very utilitarian in a lot of ways that this music is connected with the church. And then, as far as secular music goes, I think later on, as more institutions formed, uh, you know, more secular institutions, uh, some being schools, and uh, and also like in Germany and Austria in the nineteenth century, like singing clubs. Uh, formed and people would write music for that. And it also sort of correlates with the rise in literacy, the rise in the middle class of people reading for pleasure, reading poetry. And I feel it all is sort of part of a connected uh, humanistic movement. So you've said that we're seeing a growing number of civic choirs, universities, doing this kind of what what kinds of music are starting to filter into what has been a traditional choral landscape I mean I think um, more and more people are aware of music traditions from around the world um, so yes so music from all over the world is and has been for for a decent amount of time a uh, part of the kind of traditional or just part of the choral tradition um, in schools uh, and um, 
And so we can continue, we'll this continue this when we come break, back from this break. Yes, that's what I do is ask an impossibly complicated question. Right? <laughs> You're listening to Coastline. Jerry Cribs and Dr. Aaron Peisner of Cape Fear Corral are my guests today after this short break. What's on the horizon for the corral and how it plans to introduce some of this less traditional music? Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. Cape Fear Chorale performed its first concert in 1998 under the direction of its founder, Jerry Cribbs. Since then, the group has grown, formed a 501c3 organization, filled larger venues with audiences, and welcomed its next artistic director and conductor, Dr. Aaron Peisner. Both Jerry Cribbs and Dr. Peisner are with me today. The next concert, 25 Years of Cape Fear Chorale is Sunday, April 2nd, 2023, at Keenan Auditorium. At 4 o'clock. At 4 p.m., yes. yes. And we will Thank have you. that on our website so that people can find resources, links, and see all the details about the concert. Just before we went to break, Dr. Peisner, you were explaining how what has been non-traditional in the choral landscape is non-traditional music has been finding its way into the repertoire now of of other choral groups and Cape Fear Chorale. And where is that coming from? Well, I mean, it's it's kind of always been there. There's always been, uh, there have always been people uh, performing and programming music from all over the world. And I think just in the past uh, several years, there's just been more attention paid to it. And I think more of an effort to hold people accountable to uh, to program more music by composers who aren't just dead white men, um, and I think that's really important. And I think that, uh, and I think what's important there is that there is so much excellent music by people who aren't just dead white men. There's it, there's there's so much incredible music by uh, by African American composers. Uh, uh, from the 19th century and early 20th century and throughout the 20th century that just wasn't performed as much as it really should have been. And actually, I was just at the ACDA conference, the American Choral Directors Association conference uh, in Cincinnati, and there was a work performed by the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra and the May Festival Choir, The Ordering of Moses by Nathaniel Dett. It was just stunning. It was an incredible concert, incredible music, music that is original compositions, but based in uh, in spirituals, in the language of spirituals, but just really original orchestration. It was just so interesting. And, you know, I want to find more pieces like that. And, there are, and increasingly, there are also uh, more resources uh, available to, to help people find repertoire that hasn't been as... Um, as widely available as it was before. Um, 
And yeah, and, and the same kind of goes for music from all sorts of traditions, just from, from Latin America. And actually, the next concert with Cape Fear Chorale uh, in the fall is going to be Music of the Americas. And I want to program a lot of music uh, from Latin American composers and African American composers. Um, and um, yeah, just the, the, so I th and so I think maybe non-traditional isn't necessarily the right word. It's more just just music from outside of the canon. And I think what's happening now is that we're is that musicians, not just choral musicians, but symphonic musicians as well, are realizing and making efforts to expand the canon. What works are we bringing into the canon? If, if we're going to have an inclusive canon, what is that going to look like? And what can we do now to commission composers um, who are women, who are uh, composers of color, composers of uh, just of all sorts of backgrounds who have not necessarily been included in past generations of uh, you know of compositions for major ensembles, uh, how can we include those composers and build the canon of the future? Uh, and how do you do that when <laughs> you have a group, a group of almost ninety people who are mostly older white? And I realize there is diversity in Cape Fear Chorale. To you know, there there's some age diversity, there's some uh, cultural diversity people of different races, but it's largely white and older. And so how do you walk that line when you're doing uh, music from a composer of color so that it doesn't become cultural appropriation or, you or, know. Or tokenism. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that part of what you need to do is, first of all, pick music that you love. First of all, I'm not just going to pick a piece of music um, to tokenize it. Um, but to pick a piece of music that I genuinely love or multiple pieces of music that I genuinely love and to do the same amount of research and score study with that piece that I would for any piece of music. I'm going to treat a spiritual by, uh, by William Dawson the same way that I would treat not, uh, you know, I would treat them differently because they have different uh, types of performance practice, but I would give them the same amount of attention and study and thought with that versus, you know, a movement from the Brahms Requiem, which we're also doing in our upcoming concert. You know, so, yeah, I, th I think it's just about, it's about respect and it's about uh, study and, um, and, and, you know, what's, sometimes that score study and that uh, study into the tradition of the music that we're performing, and I'm thinking about some of the Latin American music that we're going to be potentially doing in the, uh, our next concert in the fall, you know, a lot of that music is, like, very joyful. It is not stiff. People, like, I'm going to encourage the chorale to be moving around and to be smiling and to be really you know, joyful in the music. And that is, and that's the performance practice. That's how that music should be performed. And I think you could go at that from like, like if you don't know that music tradition very well, that you could kind of do that in a surf at, at the surface level and just kind of mime through what that, you know, how that music might be performed. Or you can really spend some time. And, and I think what it will require is, you know, we've got YouTube. And there are so many, we have access to so much cultural information. I want people to watch videos and listen to, listen to music from whatever tradition that we're singing so, so that it's not just like us putting on a mask 
of being this uh, of this music, but so that we're really kind of internalizing uh, what's being expressed through the music and that it's coming from a genuine place. Terry Cripps. Let me interject because part of this I'm thinking as he's uh, uh, sharing there that also the singers, though they like singing things they know, I think that we like to go back and revisit things we know. I think uh, what I've noted the years that I was with Corral is that they enjoyed that, but they also were excited to do something new. Uh, I think part of it, of course, they realized that the new information fed into that brain is good for the brain, it's good for their health, it's good for their mental health. Um, and I think the singers themselves, uh, though, as I said, they enjoy singing the traditional stuff, but they all are always open, or at least expressed to me over the years, that um, that they were open to and really enjoyed being introduced to new styles uh, and new, new music, of course. And so I think that that plays to the benefit of the introduction of the, the more global music that, that is out there. And we do have access much more now because of technology to the global music and to the styles and to the performances of the global music uh, than we've ever had. And that is, as Aaron said, is helpful in their learning process, having the, the uh, clips on YouTube and those types of things. And so do you think that uh, incorporating music from around the world is also, as this region grows, and it's still growing exponentially, that we're going to start to see people from across the spectrum, and I mean that in terms of ethnicity and age, coming more to choral music than they have in the past? I hope so. I mean, I, I just hope that, I mean, I just hope that choral, that more people in general in the world are, get involved in choral music. And yeah, that means more, more people from all sorts of backgrounds. Um, and, and I hope that, yeah, I, I, I hope that our music that we that we program and that I want to continue programming uh, with Cape Fear Corral moving forward uh, will be reflective of the of the community that we live in and the world that we live in. And I hope that it expands people's understanding of the world that we live in. Because if yeah, like like Jerry just said, that if we if we only perform the music and the type of music that we know, then we're limiting ourselves and we're you know we're not exposing ourselves to. Uh, to all sorts of possibilities and all sorts of uh, music that we might fall in love with. And I think so. So that's that's part of the goal. I want to just talk a little bit about aging voices, because I, I think in general, we don't talk enough about um, and who's going to take this one. We don't talk enough about aging and what that means. And, and it's a factor when you're talking about a choral group, because as the body ages, the um the way you vocalize changes, your voice changes, your ability to sustain notes changes. And um, how do we talk to people in the group about this? And is it something that you talk openly about, Jerry Cribbs? Um, certainly, I, I think they were all aware that, that as we age, that many times our range might minimize. It might go uh, whereas we've had a higher range, it might end up going lower and we lose some of those top notes. I think the thing that we need to remember as we're aging as singers, that we still need to use our total body to help us sing. I think we we depend on our, our, 
our vocal folds to do their work, but we forget that we've got a, a rest of the body to to keep in shape to add the air, to add the the fuel to the to the breath or to the the sound. Um, and I think an awareness of the aging voice certainly is is helpful for them to for the the singers themselves to know this is happening. It's natural. It's not me personally. It's what's going on with me, but it is a natural uh, uh, process as as we age. Right. And, and are there techniques, Dr. Peisner? Yeah, I mean, part of it is just, you know, just maintaining good vocal technique and just constantly staying on top of uh, practice. I think that that's, um, that that's paramount is just uh, continuing to practice and continue, continuing to practice with good technique, you know, u- utilizing uh, your breath, supporting your breath, focusing the sound uh, using good vowels, um, and and I say good vowels. That's compl- that that sounds so uh, arbitrary or nonspecific. But you know, uh, you know, vowels that help to focus the sound um, as it leaves your body. And then, uh, and then also there are certain specific techniques, certain uh, things that I think help with the aging voice. But with I mean, really with all voices. But you know, one that I've read about recently is singing through things on what's called uh, like semi-occluded vocal tract sounds. And that's just a fancy way of saying that there's something partially obstructing the vocal tract. So that could be a vowel, or sorry, not a vowel, like singing through a consonant, like a z, or like a voice consonant, like a z, or v, like you might sing an entire melody. Sometimes in chorale rehearsals, I've had them sing entire phrases or entire sections of a piece, just sustaining on either a hum or a v or a z or zh, any of those kinds of sounds that sort of equalize the pressure within uh, the vocal tract. And that just sort of helps line things up. It helps focus the sound. And then we go back to singing with the normal text and uh, just but trying to retain that sensation that they had when uh, singing uh, through those voiced consonants. And Jerry Cribbs, you told me that you've been uh, learning quite a bit now that you've got some free time and you can sing in another choral group yourself. Tell us what you're doing and what you're learning. Well, and Dr. Peisner just hit it on the head, too. It's amazing um, if you continue to sing and practice, and I I say this very aggressively to the members of Cape Fear Chorale, practice, (laughs) practice, practice, uh, because not only do you learn the music, and you're now a real important part of the group and the success of the group and the total sound, but it improves your voice. Um, From being on the podium for so many years and and doing little bits of singing here and there for demonstration or whatever, um, I was not consistently singing. Uh, Yes, I would sing solos at church, and then I would sort of get myself in shape to do that for a couple of three, four, five weeks and then sing it. Then again, I'd go back, I'm on the podium, not singing as much. I'm doing more singing now, an hour or two a day, and what a difference it's making in, um, at least to my ear, of course I have an old ear to go with it too, so I'm not sure, but uh, to the way I feel that I'm, I'm actually have gotten back some of my range. Uh, because I'm doing more consistent singing, and I'm reminding myself, as Dr. Peisner said, on the support factor and all the things that need to go with that. So, um, yeah, I, the um, even though the voice ages, uh, it you can uh, do the right things with the technique, and you can at least help uh, minimize 
the, the uh, drastic concept or the drastic change, I should say. The next concert, 25 years of Cape Fear Chorale, is Sunday, April 2nd, 2023, 4 o'clock at Keenan Auditorium. How did you think about programming this, Dr. Peisner? Well, um, I went through the 24 years of programs, <laughs> uh, which are all uh, kind of cataloged on the Cape Fear Chorale website, and just went through and found music that I loved. That was that's kind of what it was. I just uh, it was music that I loved and also wanted to touch on specific moments like you mentioned the concert with uh, Carl Nygaard Jr. What I, I don't know if you mentioned this, but he wrote a piece that the that the the chorale commissioned a piece for uh, uh, for him to write. So it was original. For, yeah. For so, the, so when he... yeah, the one piece that Cape Fear Chorale has uh, commissioned was from Carl Nygaard for that performance. So we're performing that piece. It's called Festival of Praise and we're performing that. Um, at our concert, um, and then let's see. There was an there's another piece on there that is written by uh, composer Thomas Cousins, who is from North Carolina and has a connection with a member of the chorale. Um, and I wanted to include that piece, but also I mean those are both great pieces of music. I wouldn't have picked them if I didn't think that they were great pieces of music. So I just yeah I went through. I wanted to have a wide range of time periods and styles, and yeah, just music that I loved. And of course, we will have all that information on our website. This means I don't have time to ask Jerry Cribbs what his favorite concert of all time was as part of the Cape Fear Chorale, which puts him on the spot. That's this edition of Coastline. Jerry Cribbs, Dr. Aaron Peisner, thank you both so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell. Jonathan Furnell engineered this episode. Coastline is a production of WHQR Public Media. Continue the conversation with us on Facebook at WHQR's Coastline, hosted by. Find the episode at whqr.org, along with resources, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Coastline.